You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Thursday, May 28th, 2020. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ed Harrison. It's after market close in the UK, and we're going to be joined by our UK-based managing editor, Roger Hurst, shortly. But first, here's Jack Farley with an interesting take on the employment situation in the US. Thanks, Ed. Today marked another dismal day for the American workforce, as the Bureau of Labor reported that an additional 2.1 million Americans filed unemployment claims over the last week raising the total number of claims to over 40 million. This week's number is 13% lower than it was last week, but it's 870% higher than it was a year ago. The layoffs continue, with American Airlines announcing yesterday its plans to lay off up to 30% of its management and support staff. That's over 5,000 employees worldwide. Already, over 39,000 employees from American Airlines have retired early or been placed on voluntary leave. And it's very important for American that all of these departures are voluntary, or at least appear to be. It did, after all, accept a $4.1 billion grant from Congress in April on the condition that it not let any of its employees go until September 30th. Then it got a low-interest loan of $1.7 billion on the same condition, and it's still trying to get $4.75 billion in additional funding from the Treasury. So that's why American Airlines is trying to have it both ways. It wants to shore up its balance sheet and reduce headcount But at the same time, it wants to remain in compliance with the covenants of its PSP loan. As a result, American is putting their finger on the scale, offering employees voluntary leaves and buyouts. But if American hasn't met their payroll reduction quotas by June 10th, they will be laying employees off. But they'll be paying them until September 30th with no severance after that. But it's not just airline workers who are going through this. The tech industry in the U.S. has laid off over 40,000 workers since March 11th sometimes over 3,000 in a day. Within the tech industry, travel and transportation have been hit the hardest. Uber has laid off about 25% of its entire workforce. This alone makes up about half of the workers that have been laid off within the travel and transportation sectors. Private companies have also taken hits, ranging from VC-backed behemoths, such as Airbnb and Bird, to much smaller companies in their nascent stages of growth. You can see this in the Bloomberg U.S. Startup Barometer, which recently plummeted. This is significant because one narrative you might have encountered is that, yes, industrial companies like airlines are suffering, but tech companies like Amazon, Zoom, Alphabet, and Facebook, these are the companies that are thriving in the brave new world. And in a sense, that's true. None of these companies have announced layoffs. And in fact, many have added to their workforce, most notably Amazon. And if you look at the tech-dominated NASDAQ, it's dominated the Dow Jones industrial average. But these layoffs in Silicon Valley are a reminder that while a few technology companies may be blooming in the desert, many tech workers have not been spared. And with that, let's go back to Ed and Roger. Thanks, Jack. Roger, good to be back with you again. Good to see you again, Ed. How's it going? It's going well. Uh, 
You know, I want to lead uh, our discussion on markets with the real economy here because we continue to get bad news out of the, the U.S. employment markets. And as Jack just pointed out, the employment situation is having a pernicious effect in Silicon Valley. I, th I thought it was interesting that in today's interview on Real Vision, Stephen Clapham argued that the crisis will force companies to prioritize shoring up their balance sheets. Uh, sounds a little bit like Richard Koo, who I spoke to a couple of weeks ago. But here's the thing. Clapham says the result will be uh, that stock buybacks will be diminished and return on equity across various sectors will suffer. And, and, you know, and by the way, the second cut at Q1 GDP in the U.S. came out today and was showed GDP down 5 percent. But it doesn't look like share prices are suffering as a result right now. I mean, some people say it's about the reopening. Uh, what's your take on how markets are digesting the real economy data already? So I think the the way the markets are looking at the real data is that when you look outside of the U.S., the recovery in share prices or risk assets is far shallower than it is in the U.S. And we've talked about it before. What we're seeing in the U.S. is five stocks in particular, although we have to kind of give a hat tip, hat tip to things like the Russell 2000s or the Midcaps, which have had a fantastic run over the last um, last week and a half or so. So we have seen some level of rotation. But I think the reality is that the bond market has hardly moved. We've seen a little bit of a steepening, particularly between the five-year and the 30-year, the two-year and the 10-year a little bit, but really that long end. So the real economy is still relatively subdued. Yes, oil prices have gone up and people have always looked at oil prices. But if you look at the volumes in oil prices, they've absolutely plummeted when you look in the first, second and third months. So this, again, has been a wafting up on low volume, which is what we've seen in the um, in the equity market as well. The only one which I would say has been kind of genuine pressure behind it has been the um the corporate bond market. So when you look at the LQD and the um, HYG ETFs, shares outstanding, both of those have exploded higher. I think for the HYG, which is a junk bond version, it's kind of doubled. But these are, it's this is financial engineering, or this is this is the implied, implicit and explicit bids from the Federal Reserve. And in fact, when we saw a second move higher, in particularly the HYG, it came when the Federal Reserve actually started doing a little bit of buying because they hadn't in those first couple of weeks. So it can, still goes back to you can look at U.S. assets and what you're seeing there is a distortion of the a distortion of prices versus economic data, but not a distortion versus the accommodation that we've seen. But as soon as you go outside of those assets themselves and outside of the geography of, of the USA, then things are just not quite so rosy. They're being dragged up on the coattails, but not, not as rosy by any means. Right. I, I mean, so I would summarize that to say that a lot of this is obviously liquidity driven with the Fed in particular. And so that you would see it centered in the U.S. and centered on those five names that you were talking about. But then even once you have that premise, then the question becomes, you know, uh, let, let's talk about the real economy because the stocks have to reflect the real economy over the long term, perhaps. I mean, we can talk about that. But what was the state of the world before the virus hit? Because, you know, obviously that's the key, as you were telling me before we got on air, looking forward. Uh, how? Let's go back to where we were before the virus hit, wipe the slate clean with the virus, and then come out on the other side and think about what that means in terms of uh, share prices. 
It was a very fragile economy beforehand. In fact, we've had a very, very fragile economy for the last 10 years. It's been a very, very low trajectory in growth. And so we've had this massive disconnect, and particularly over the last five years, between the equity market in the US and the economy itself. What we've been seeing is, and you can see it in things like even in profits, so revenues and profits um, within the S&P companies have been flatlining for five years whilst the equity market has gone higher. We eventually saw median real wages in the US overtake the 2008 level in 2015, 2016. But overall, that growth, that economy has been a relatively turgid type of economy. And what I think is, in some ways, what I feel today is a little bit like it was between the mid-January and mid-February, which is we saw the equity market going up in the US, despite the fact that you could see the, the issues of COVID spreading around the world. They were coming out of China, but they hadn't really gone fully global. But the equity market was being pressed higher, pushed higher by that central bank liquidity because of that. You remember, the, there was the whole um, funding issues, the repo issues, issues that started in September of 2019. And that had pushed the equity market to a point where there's an incredible disconnect. And then suddenly reality caught up and it all rolled over. And then we had two months of, of very, very poor returns. And now we've had a couple of months of rebound. It feels a bit like we're now in that similar sort of position where we're being supported by the liquidity, by the accommodation, but we're not really seeing the market pricing in what will probably be the solvency issues and the real growth issues two months and three months down the road. But that's going to be a much slower process. We've just seen a shock going through the system. Everything reacted quickly. Markets reacted quickly. Central banks reacted quickly. In 2008, it was two years in the making. This was two weeks in the making. But I think what we're now going to see is something which will be a much more elongated process. So the real economy now is going to feel the side effects of what was there before, which was a consumer that was very indebted, auto loans, um, student loans, mortgages not so bad, but everything else was pretty poor. Similar things in a lot of Northern Europe. And now you've seen cash flows basically being turned off. Yes, they'll get turned on, but when they get turned on again, they're going to be turned on with all the requirements to pay some of these things back and people going, okay, that made me a little bit nervous. I've got to do something about it. Right. You know, and when you look at uh, the, the numbers, the forward looking numbers, they're not they're not looking good. I mean, I was I was telling you before that the Fed's uh, latest beige book, which came out yesterday, it's a survey of business leaders around the U.S., it said that the 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 firms in the Fed's 12 different districts, uh, they said, quote, the outlook remained highly uncertain and most contacts were pessimistic about the potential pace of recovery. So if you have that on the business side, certainly business investments down, you know that uh, the household sector side is down. And then you also have the balance sheet issues, which I was telling you that Clapham was was pointing out. So going back to the whole January, February time frame, what does that mean in terms of price discovery? That is, you know, when do we get the same sort of it matters, it didn't matter until it did matter that we had in January and February? So I think this has to be very much a bottom up impact this time around, because you know, if we're taking all our indications from the small number of very large cap companies, then we're going to have a distorted view of reality. What we need to do is, uh, or what we have to wait for is to see whether the real consumption comes back. Now, there are signs that mortgage applications are picking up because obviously with rates where they are so low, then people go, well, you know, if I can, if I've got the opportunity, I'll take advantage of these low rates. And so you could say, well, that's going to be a spending spree coming coming forward. But the, the median, so the, the majority population, in fact, 
um, are going to be in a position where their jobs have been impaired. They're probably actually in many ways benefiting in some ways from this environment where they're getting cash, but not doing too much. And I know a lot of people have actually taken on you know, a job as well as getting cash um, in the UK. So there are these opportunities where this is actually a good environment for some, but when it comes to reality, we're not going to see consumption being the same, I don't call it animal spirits, but that same debt fueled level that we saw before. The reality will sink in it, and it just takes a marginal change, a marginal change in behavior, a marginal number amount of people, you know, 10% of people to significantly retrench, to change a lot of the dynamics and to push us into a much lower trajectory of growth. And when we talk about that V, we talked about this um, on a few recent shows, we can have quite an astonishing V from the depths of despair that we were in and still never attain the former levels of consumption that we had prior to February. And that's the thing where we're going to go. But at the moment, it feels like we're having that. We're, we're coming back up, but we're coming up from such a low level. Right. And, you know, let, let's think about this from the market perspective, because, uh, we, you know, the market internals can perhaps tell you a little bit about uh, what markets are anticipating. And I think that I was watching some of the stuff that you did uh, for Refinitiv, and you were talking about emerging markets versus the S&P 500. Uh, talk to me about that, where it is uh, now and what it's telling you. Well, I think if we were seeing true, if we want a true rebound in global growth, you'd expect the high beta plays on global growth to be outperforming, and that would be emerging markets. So this, this is one of these weird things, a bit like we can go talk about the dollar smile as well, which is when you get true global growth, the dollar goes down because other currencies with higher beta are going up. So it's not really dollar weakness, it's actually emerging market currency strength. We're seeing a little bit of that now, but you'd also expect with that to see emerging market equities outperform. Global growth is particularly good for higher beta equities. At the moment, as of today, just before we came on air, the ratio of the S&P versus the emerging market MSCI emerging market index had just made a new high. So this is still US equities outperforming pretty much everything else. The Nasdaq outperforming everything within the US, the US outperforming everything else outside of the US. Today, we saw we had been seeing a bit of a rotation and value picking up, but today the Nasdaq again has rebounded to be outperforming the Russell. So the point there is when you look at equities, the S&P outperforming emerging markets tells me that this is still a US liquidity accommodation story. The other things I'm looking for is we've had a rebound in, in some of the banks. We've had a rebound in some of those EMFX. I'm looking for those to roll over. Today in the US, the banks were struggling a little bit despite the yield curve steepening. So that was a little bit of a surprise. You'd want the banks to be doing better if we're seeing real growth. And then obviously we look at the Chinese currency as well because there's all these other geopolitical issues going on. That's been weakening at quite a rapid rate over the last couple, rate over the last couple of days. If that keeps moving, then that's going to put pressure on the dollar and all the other currencies will weaken against the dollar as well, EM currencies. So looking at these things, when they start rolling over, if they start rolling over, and I think they will, then we'll probably think, okay, this phase of worrying about solvency is now well behind us. But we start to think about, sorry, the, the worrying about liquidity is well behind us. Worrying about solvency is still ahead of us. And now we start thinking about that if these things roll over. Right. So basically, you're saying Eurozone banks, uh, uh, EMFX, and uh, CNY, those are the three things that you're looking for, for telltale signs from you know, whether the market is discounting growth or, or not. Growth, yeah, growth versus liquidity. So growth, real global economic growth, real, you know, real economy versus what the Fed is doing. 
plus a little bit of what the fiscal is doing as well in countries like the US. And that's why I'm also looking at that, uh, you know, the S&P versus emerging market equities, because emerging market equities will start to rebound and should rebound if there's true growth coming. If it's just about the, you know, the Fed stuffing the channels, then US equities will continue to outperform. And that's what they've been doing. That's what they're doing at the end of last year. It's what they're doing again. But you can trade the macro much more cleanly through currencies and through everything, all, all assets outside of the US regime. So, you know, let's think about it from a, the liquidity perspective and just a pure technicals for a second then. So let's just say that, you know, it is totally liquidity driven, in which case suddenly you're looking more at technicals rather than fundamentals. We have uh, Tony Greer, who's come on in the past, and he talked about uh, the 30-30 the level, I believe, which is where we are. Um, how do How do you square your view, which I think is probably more you know, medium to long term, and it's fundamentally based with the trading view, which is completely liquidity based. And that's what Tony Greer is talking about. So it kind of fits in with, in some ways, with what I was saying. And you know, there's an episode I highlighted on, on this show a few weeks ago, back in November, when I outlined the mechanism and how the Fed was doing what it's doing because of the repo and why I expected the S&P last year. And I said, I think it will go up to the end of the year and actually into the beginning of this year because of what the Fed's doing. It's a liquidity story. And what what it means is, you know, you we've almost got to square away the idea that could we get the S&P at 4,000, but still have a recession or potentially a deep depression in places like the US and maybe globally? And yes, potentially we can because the equity market is not being driven by active managers who work on valuation. It hasn't been for five years. It's been driven by flow of funds. And if those funds are being supercharged implicitly or explicitly by the Fed, then these assets can significantly outperform expectations. So I think, and I think what, what you know, Tony Greer was pointing out, which I think is a very incredibly valid point, which is the short term and the long term make a complete picture. And to mm. use one without the other, you're losing the complete picture. And you know, you think about it. What, what do we want to make? We want to make seven percent a year, which is a good return. That's what pension funds want to make. In the real world today, it's very hard to make four percent a year. But if you can make twenty percent in two months. Now, obviously, you're not going to put all your portfolio into one trade, but if you could, then you would. And it should also inform whether you're going to get short at, you know, should you got short at 2,500, 2,900? We got to, we're currently got to 3060, 3060. So we're actually percent beyond where Tony said. But the point is that these are all relevant discussions to have. And this liquidity story could mean that the US equity market still surprises on the upside. But over the last week and a half, we started to see rotations. We started to see movement into value. So out of the high performing tech stocks into some of the lower performing or worse performing value stocks, banks did have a few days of outperformance. If that continues, that's distribution. Distribution is the beginning of a topping scenario. That doesn't mean the top is in. It just means that we can think about maybe changing our risk profile a little bit because that's, that's what seems to be happening right now with these moves in things like the Russell having a lot of days of outperformance, with the banks having a little bit of a breakout as well. Yeah, very interesting. I have to say, uh, it, it makes it very difficult to know when to to make the transition. How how do you think about making the transition from that short-term technical, what I would call momentum-driven view to a much more uh, longer-term focused view? Is it those three signals that you're looking for, uh, CNY, EMFX, uh, bank shares, or are there other signs that would 
give you the sense that, yes, I need to start thinking in a more fundamental basis? Well, this, this is where you get um, this incredible bifurcation in terms of how people react to the market going up and going down, because everybody has a different risk tolerance and time horizon. So am I a short-term trader in this current market? No, I haven't been. I took some stuff off the table. And I, I think I said on a previous one, my, my kind of mental view here is that I'm not going to buy this market until we break the all-time highs, because maybe if we break the all-time highs, we can say to ourselves, oh, my God, you know, in a world of deflation, disinflation, central bank liquidity can offset that back to a neutral position. And maybe I only have to really worry about equities going down when we get true inflation or serious inflation, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent. So I'm happy. My view is I want to lighten up a bit more around these levels. Now, unfortunately, I'm in the UK with a lot of UK stocks and they're nowhere near the sort of levels where that's exciting. So I'm sort of thinking to myself, OK, do I hold on a little bit more? But if we broke to new all-time highs, I'd probably add to it. I don't think that's going to happen. And you know, to be a little bit hypocritical in myself, I'm not sure if we broke to new all-time highs, I would even do that. I probably want to break to significant ones where we can say the framework is significantly different from the one we've all kind of analyzed and loved over the last 20, 30 years to one where all that matters is central bank liquidity and the rules-based funds and active managers and our opinions on the usual um, emotional investing are still irrelevant at this point in time. I don't think that's the case. I think that we will still roll over. But we have to factor that potential in, particularly for the U.S. market, which is why if you want to play the macro, go outside of the U.S. Right. You know, uh, as you say that, the, the first thing that comes to mind for me, honestly, is uh, Richard Werner. Uh, or in German, Vanna and uh, and Hugh Hendry. I don't know if you saw that video, yes. but yeah, did. in that video, the, the sense that I got was that Hugh Hendry was trying to drive the conversation toward this specific question. The question was, in his mind, that you know the world that I lived in when I first came into markets was the one that you were talking about that we were living in 15, 20 years ago, where the algos weren't in control, where it wasn't all about passive investing. However, in a liquidity-driven world where it is all about algos, where it is about passive investing, perhaps it's also about central bank liquidity forcing things to the 4,000 level like you're talking about. And Hendry seemed to be asking Werner, why don't you tell me in your model how that works? Because it, what I'm seeing on the ground in, in markets tells me that uh, we can just go higher. Who's not to say that uh, you can just keep the debt uh, levels going up. And I don't really feel like uh, Verna gave a, uh, a, an explicit answer to that that was satisfactory to Hugh. So I think that the two ways this ends or can roll over is the first one is we start to see the real impact on the um, on the corporate sector where we see that these the, you know, profit levels are being impacted in a way which is not just leveling off, but a, a, a movement down. And the reason why that matters is that if it was just profits going down, but nothing else, then it doesn't change the dynamic of who's buying it. Apart from, we know, or we should know, that corporate buybacks are diminished compared right. to where they were prior to February. So they're, they're not out of the market, but they're 50%. They were the big buyers, so they're gone. But has the Fed stepped into their place? They were a trillion a year, the Fed's doing two, three trillion, which doesn't necessarily mean one for one. We've talked about that before, but let's say it's a one in three and they do three trillion, that's a trillion in. 
But then the other bit, which is, I think the important bit is 401ks. Now, 401ks obviously come from a stand, um, a constant income wage being paid. But if the corporates are seeing their profits fall, will this time they decide that they can't do the buybacks, therefore they're going to juice themselves or try and maintain margins by cutting wages and cutting jobs. Now, those jobs are, okay, maybe they're in the lower sector, which is what we've seen so far in the last two or three weeks, two or three months, the ones that didn't have the highest input into a 401k anyway. But at the margin, I think 401k inflows will be diminished as well. So two of the big themes were corporate buybacks and the rules-based funds getting money, particularly from pension funds. And I think both of those go down. So I think that what we're seeing here is a low volume. We know it's a low volume rally. What's also been added has been the retail. They're not significant, but again, at the margin, they are significant. That's the emotion as well, which we've not had. And I argued back in January that this wasn't a true bubble in equities, even though at all time highs, because yes, you got valuation, but you didn't have the emotional attachment to people going, this is brilliant. This is not going to ever turn around. Actually, everyone was saying, this is ridiculous. This has to turn around. So when it turned around, there weren't that many people who disagreed with the big sell-off. So now we're in an environment where no buybacks, lower 401k inflows in the US, and the emotional attachment of a significant increase and in influx of retail. To me, that's a mixture that means that the future will probably see significantly lower prices on the S&P. But where from? Is that significantly lower before 10% higher? Or is it significantly lower from next week? Who knows? Again, if so, I want to play the equity market, I'll go on sell banks versus versus the Nasdaq. So if I could sum up, I mean, uh, the 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 grand sum of what you're saying to me, it sounds like, and I don't want to be pessimistic, but uh, people are being sucked into a uh, a bear market rally, and the higher this goes, the the worse that's going to be for them when eventually the fundamentals come to the fore. I think it's uh, what I think about the next phase when we go lower, if we go lower, but is that we've seen the shock and awe move. We've seen the super high volatility deleveraging with vol of vol blowing out. The next phase will be death by a thousand cuts. So people will be able to get out of the next one. But the problem is there won't be that sudden 10% sudden down, I've got to get out. It'll go down a bit, it'll go up a bit. And anyone who remembers 2000 to 2003, it's, the market spent more time going up than going down, just that when it went down, it went down a lot more quickly. And so you kind of, you never really quite know. And being bearish in that sort of environment is very, very hard. So you've got to take a long-term view, which is why it goes down to everybody's individual requirement, age, retirement expectations. Are you trading for fun? Do you want an income or a pension retirement fund? All those are such different things that will define whether you want to go in and out, whether you want to be longer gold or not whether you want income and whether you will buy into the dip and buy stocks with incomes where you buy the NASDAQ, which maybe doesn't have income, but might get taxed by every government in the world to start paying for this. You know, there's all those sorts of things. So I believe there will be death by a thousand cuts. I think that we'll make these new liquidity highs. But as I talked about with Ash yesterday, the higher we go, the less the central banks of the world and the fiscal authorities of the world will be inclined to go, we're going to keep doing this because they will take the cue from the risk asset markets saying, OK, things are getting better. In the meantime, there's death by a thousand cuts on jobs, small businesses going under. And that will be the that will be where the flow of money into these assets, which are doing quite well today, will suddenly reverse or will suddenly be weakened in the future, which is why I think we get the slow decline um, over many, I think it'll be many months and probably a couple of years. 
Yeah, I mean, that thesis sounds very much uh, on target. And I think that the the silver lining in all of what you said is, is, is that in Death by a Thousand Cuts, you do have the time for exit. It's not... Uh, a sudden swoop down, there is the potential for you to get out in in a timely fashion. Yeah, absolutely. And or, I mean, it's one of those things, there will be time, but death by a thousand cuts means, okay, you know, oh, I'll be okay tomorrow. Oh, I'll be okay the day after. Whereas for the last two or three, uh, there's so many weeks where just going, like, so many days over the last two months where we're just thinking, oh my God, get me out. Whereas this time you might go, oh no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. You're down 10%. Oh, it'll be fine. And that's what happens in the long drawn out bear markets. They never hurt you enough in a single day or a single week to make you want to just liquidate your positions and go into cash. So death by a thousand cuts is you just don't notice you're dying. It's the boiling frog. Exactly. Exactly. Frog in the frying pan. And that is going to be the I think that's going to be the thing where, you know, you got to make your decision. I'm I'm sort of thinking, okay, I'll take myself into much more cash. And if the, if the market goes higher, I'm no worse off than I was before the beginning of February if I do that. And then I can add a few positions or I can buy some cheap calls because volatility will have fallen. So for me still, you know, you hear people say the pain trade is up. It's only up for investment managers who are underperforming their peers. But for everybody who's long the market, the pain trade is never up. You know, it's never up. It's an opportunity cost, but it's not pain. It's like, I need to get money. OK, you could be short futures. I get that. But the pain trade for most people who are invested in the market is not up. It's an opportunity cost if I should have been longer. That's the thing. So for me, if the market goes up from here, I'll add to my positions, but I'm happy for it to go higher before I do that because I'm no worse off than I was in February. Great conversation, Roger. As always, it is a pleasure to talk to you and uh, look forward to it again. Actually, I think we're going to be on tomorrow. Is that right? I think we are. We've got the AMA, is that? the um, That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. We're on for that. Yeah. Good to talk to you. I'll see you then. I'll see you then. Will do. Catch you later. Cheers. Bye-bye. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.